0: Leanne Caldwell can pinpoint the exact moment last week when the mood in Congress totally transformed. She
1: was reporting from the U.S. Capitol like she usually does. I was talking to Democrats outside the House floor on Friday morning. This was the Friday morning where they started the day really excited to be voting on this gun legislation.
0: This was a landmark piece of legislation, the biggest federal gun control bill in this country in decades. The Senate had passed the bill by a wide margin the night before. And now that they had the votes in the House, it was clear that this was about to become law. And the fact that it passed in a genuinely bipartisan way made it an even bigger deal. Uh, Madam Speaker, let me just say that this is a historic moment. We are on the threshold of passing the first major overhaul over Federal gun safety legislation in decades
1: but before they were able to vote on that bill, the Supreme Court came down with a decision that overturned roe v wade and For Democrats, this completely took the wind out of their sails. They started the day thinking was going to be jubilant and excited, was depressed and devastated and furious and horrified. I saw two members of Congress, two women members of Pennsylvania, when they saw each other off the House floor, they just embraced each other and had tears in their eyes. For
0: Leanne, watching this all play out this scene felt really important or even symbolic. This herculean effort by Congress to pass something significant could so quickly get overshadowed by the Supreme Court. And to her, it raised a question. What really is the power of Congress? And how are recent decisions by this conservative court undermining the ability of Congress to legislate? From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 29th. Today, we examine the powers of Congress and what it means to have a Supreme Court pushing against them. We're going to talk with Leanne about Congress's response to the end of Roe v. Wade. And we'll hear about another Supreme Court decision that came out last week on guns that could have a big impact on future interpretations of the Second Amendment. But first, I asked Leanne about this new gun control law, what it does, and how it got so much Republican support.
1: This legislation did not go nearly as far as many Democrats, President Biden included, wanted. But this legislation is the most that Congress has done on the issue of guns in nearly three decades since the 1994 ban on assault weapons. And this came together with the support of 15 Republicans in the Senate and 14 Republicans in the House of Representatives. And all Democrats in both the House and the Senate and gun legislation actually reached the president's desk and was signed into law over the weekend. I think just those numbers
0: of the number of Republicans who voted in favor of this in the House and especially in the Senate. I mean, 15 Republican senators voting for this Fifteen Republican senators, <laughs> I think, don't vote, vote for anything that, that Democrats are trying to pass. Um, and, and it does feel like a pretty rare moment from that perspective. So can you talk a little bit about how that happened, how they were able to get so much Republican support for this bill?
1: Well, you have to look at who the Republicans are who voted for it. Six are retiring, don't have to face voters again. One was... Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell.
0: The American people do not have to choose between safer schools and the Constitution. And neither does the United States Senate.
1: Probably the most important Republican to support it. He gave the green light to other members in his party to also support it.
0: We're considering a bipartisan bill that will make our country safer without making it Any less free.
1: And then, of course, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, who was the lead negotiator on this.
0: We're not looking to posture or to try to embarrass anybody. We're trying to find a solution to a very real problem. And I think what we've come up with um, will, in the end, uh, pass the test, which I know so many of us believe is the standard. And that standard is will it save lives?
1: And then there were two Republicans who are actually up for re-election this year. They are Senator Todd Young of Indiana.
0: If we can't find some way around this that protects uh, Second Amendment rights and that and brings everyone along, uh, then maybe, at least for the time being, you set that aside and, and figure out if there are things that can get done. There ought to be.
1: He didn't really have a primary challenger. It's a conservative state. He is going to win his re-election, so he didn't really have any sort of political pressure on him. And he has come out in the last year or so as someone who has been very pragmatic and willing to work across the aisle on a multitude of issues, actually in the last two years, despite his conservatism and despite the conservative state that he comes from. And the other is Senator Lisa Murkowski, um, who is a fascinating person herself. And she comes from a state of Alaska that a lot of people, especially in rural Alaska, a lot of um, indigenous people in Alaska rely on guns literally for food. They hunt their food. Um, It is survival. It is a way of life. I am a strong Second Amendment supporter. I am a a gun owner and and one who uh, takes Takes protection of the Second Amendment very, very seriously, but I also but she came out in support of this legislation as well, and she is in a primary in August against a Trump-backed person who is more conservative than her and who denounced this compromise gun bill. Right. So, how we balance this? How we ensure uh, again a level of, of of safety of gun safety? How we work to to protect innocent people while still protecting and balancing our Second Amendment rights. This This is not an easy balance, but it is a balance that must be maintained. And so, you know, looking at the dynamics of the Republicans who did vote for it, I think that it was just a really interesting confluence of events and time. And it was a moment that seemed like it was politically doable, especially given the series of events that the country had just gone through, the mass shooting in Buffalo, the one in Uvalde, and the several more that have happened since then.
0: A couple weeks ago, we were talking about this framework that had come out that was basically, you know, the outline for what this bill was going to look like. What were the things that changed along the way? And does this bill still do something meaningful?
1: Well, the things that were in the framework— actually stayed in the framework and became legislation, there was nothing that was dropped, which was really surprising to me. There were things that were almost dropped, including the so-called boyfriend loophole. And that is the thing that if, you know, a spousal abuser or someone who— Has a child with another person uh, is convicted of domestic violence, they have to have their guns taken away. Well, the boyfriend loophole means that if you are a dating partner, then you do not have to subscribe to having your guns taken away despite your domestic violence conviction. So that almost fell out of the bill. That was one of the last remaining things that the Republicans and Democrats really struggled to come to an agreement on. And,
0: And how did they find common ground on that? What did they end up deciding on?
1: Republicans were most concerned with due process. They were fearful that a person with a domestic violence conviction, a, not just a felony but a misdemeanor as well, would have their guns confiscated and there would never be any chance that they'd get them back. And so what they did, what they agreed to, was a five-year time frame. So in five years, if a person does not have any other domestic violence misdemeanors or felonies, has also no other violent crime misdemeanors or felonies, they would be able to get their guns back. They would have to prove that they have a clean record. And that is the due process that Republicans demanded and that Democrats agreed to. Interesting.
0: So they were basically like, look, you can take people's guns away in these scenarios for five years. But then after that, if they seem to be acting right, then they get their guns back. Correct. I I also heard that there was um, questions around what it actually means to be a boyfriend, which I found kind of interesting. Like, how do you define who is a dating partner under the law?
1: Yeah, that was another concern from Republicans, too. The bill actually never— explicitly says how to define a boyfriend. But what it does say is it says that the length of time matters, the frequency that the two people saw each other matters, and those would be taken into consideration. Now, who takes that into consideration? That's essentially a judge. And I asked Senator Chris Murphy, is it just up to the judge to decide how, you know, what's a romantic— relationship is that two months, six months, one year. And he says that there is reams and reams of case law and precedent on how to define a boyfriend. And so they did not seem very concerned that that was going to be a problem.
0: You know, I think the more we talk about the details of this legislation and the particularities of who it's going to apply to and in what cases and for how long, I mean, it really makes clear that this is not the end-all, be-all gun control law, right? That that this, I think, to many Democrats feels like nibbling around the edges um, at what is such a significant problem in our country. So have you been hearing that from Democrats on the Hill, that, like, we're celebrating this thing that doesn't do as much as we want it to, nearly as much as we want it to?
1: Yes, but, and there's a huge but here, because... Yeah, they wanted it to go much further. If they had their way, they would ban assault weapons altogether. There would be universal background checks. There would be limits on magazine capacity. It would have gone much, much, much further. But Democrats are pretty thrilled that they were able to get this. And they think that it is going to have an impact. They think that It is going to save lives. And one place to look is the gun control groups. They are also on board, too. The domestic violence groups, they are on board. They think that this is a very good start. And I asked Senator Murphy of Connecticut, the lead Democratic negotiator, this question specifically. I said, how were you able to get the groups on board? And he said it actually wasn't hard. He said they were very nervous. But when Senator Murphy went back to them and told them about what was being considered, he said, quote, pleasantly surprised at the scope and the breadth of what is on the table. And so he said from that point on, they were working toward getting a deal rather than trying to get more from the deal because they thought that it was significant enough for right now.
0: So many of the things that you're describing sound like kind of classic lawmaking 101, like what they show in Schoolhouse Rock, right? Is that like you have two groups of people in different positions, but that they find a common ground. They... Think through the things that they're able to uh, you know, see eye to eye on. They come to some compromises and like that's how a bill becomes the law. But that so rarely happens anymore that that I wonder if you think that there are elements to how this process went down that could be a blueprint going forward of like, okay, Democrats have finally figured out how to start to try to negotiate and actually pass bills with Republicans in Congress or I wonder if there aren't really any lessons learned um, here going forward.
1: I think that there's always lessons learned from every single negotiation that succeeds and that fails. But if this is going to be a framework and a mold and a model for being able to get everything done moving forward, no. These people know how to negotiate, and they know how to get a deal when they want a deal. And they know when a deal is really important and critical for their political survival for the country. And I don't mean to be a skeptic here, but— the writing of legislation and the compromising isn't the isn't the difficult part. The difficult part is having, you know, the lobby groups on board and all the special interests and the constituents, the actual voters and the right wing and the left wing and the mainstream media. Like there's just so many factors in today's day and age. And when it comes to legislating and and a large part of it is political fundraising as well. For this one, though, the circumstances. Were specific And something that my colleague Mike DeBonis wrote in a really great story over the weekend, there was one line in it that really stuck out to me, which was so poignant. And it said, the negotiators of this deal, they had decided amongst each other that all of the outside groups, the NRA, the gun control groups, the sportsmen, the fraternal order of police, the domestic violence groups, the mental health groups, they would all be able to provide their insight, but none of them would have veto power over this legislation. And that was an agreement and a commitment that the senators made and stuck to. And that ultimately is, I think, why this was able to come together.
0: After the break, I talk with Leanne about the Supreme Court decision that could threaten this landmark gun law. We'll be right back. Leanne, you know, you talk about all the difficult parts of this process or the factors that weigh on uh, these members of Congress as they're trying to do a deal like this. But I think the other part of this that's becoming more and more clear is the Supreme Court. I mean, I think the timing was very interesting, instructive, that at the same time, in the same week that this bill passed, um, you also had the Supreme Court making a pretty major ruling about gun control and essentially leaning in the opposite direction. Can you talk about this ruling from last week and what it says and why it's significant?
1: Yeah, well, the gun ruling, you know, this happened the same day, the morning of the Senate passing this significant gun legislation. The text of the Second Amendment enshrines a right not just to keep arms, but to bear them and the relevant history and tradition, exhaustively surveyed by this court in the Heller decision, confirm that the text protects an individual right to carry firearms outside the home for purposes of self-defense. The way that New York law worked is if you wanted to carry a weapon, outside your home, a concealed carry permit license, you would have to show that there was a special need for it. But that concession dooms New York's law, which makes it a crime for a typical law-abiding New Yorker to exercise that constitutional right. Now, what the Supreme Court said is that requirement to demonstrate a special need was a violation of the Second Amendment, of someone's right to bear arms. And so it overturned that. And so, advocates say, is going to lead to the proliferation of concealed guns on New York City streets, New York streets. And it also goes against allowing the states to make their own decisions on what gun laws should be. So then you have this on one hand, and then 12 hours later, the Senate passes this legislation which tries to put some safeguards around gun ownership. And it's a really mixed bag. And it's going to only time will tell which one has a bigger impact on society.
0: You know, our our colleague Paul Kane wrote something recently that I thought was really interesting. That was about how the decisive action of the Supreme Court puts into real relief the difficulties that Congress has in passing almost anything. Um, And Paul talked to Congressman Jamie Raskin, um, who basically said, quote, the Supreme Court has more power than Congress to act on the things it wants to act on because there is this 6-3 conservative majority and that they're really poised to be able to make rulings on a lot of different issues that they're interested in or passionate about and to really strike new ground in bold and surprising and I think in some cases or to some people scary ways. And I wonder what you think about that if you feel like that's what we're seeing here with guns and with other things is that it takes so much work for Congress to do something meaningful that the Supreme Court can counteract with relative ease.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court definitely has a much bigger majority than Congress does. In the House of Representatives, there's a five-seat margin between Republicans and Democrats. Very wide difference in Democratic ideology from, you know, the most conservative Democrat, Henry Cuellar of Texas, to the most liberal. Let's say Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Cory Bush is really vast, but you need every single one of them pretty much to support the same legislation in order for it to pass. And in the Senate, it's even more complicated because there's an even split, 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats. And to pass most things in the Senate, it needs the support of 60, which in this case, you need 10 Republicans. And so, you know, Democrats in the Senate argue that they don't have the majority. Yes, they can decide what comes to the Senate floor because they have the majority in that sense, but they don't have a majority to actually be able to pass legislation because the way the Senate rules are is it's a 60-vote majority at this point is what you need, Um, or you need real bipartisanship. And one thing that I've been thinking about is for decades, Republicans, their mantra when it comes to Supreme Court confirmations is, and even lower court confirmations, is they don't want activist judges, judges that legislate from the bench. And that is something that they have always said when there was a more liberal majority on the court. But really, you know, you could argue, and Democrats and progressives absolutely argue this, is that's exactly what's happening now with a conservative majority on the court. They have really remade a lot of major issues in this country in just the 10 months that they've been in session.
0: Leanne, I'd also love to talk a little bit about the fallout from Friday's Supreme Court decision and what pressure the overturning of Roe v. Wade puts on Congress to do something or pass something that would federally protect the right to an abortion. Where is that? Like, What are we hearing from The Hill so far on whether that's something that lawmakers are actually trying to do?
1: Let's start with the Democrats. They're the ones who are in power. They control government, although I just talked about how not by much. Um, the House says that they've already done it. They've already voted to codify Roe v. Wade. That bill is stuck in the Senate. The Senate voted on that legislation less than two months ago and it failed. My Democrat colleagues would like to convey the impression that this legislation, with this legislation, they're merely attempting to codify. A widely held belief from which
0: no reasonable person dissents. That, Madam President, is baloney.
1: And so what happens next? Democrats don't have a lot of answers. Their answer is for voters to be angry and to vote and to vote for more Democrats. And they say when there are more Democrats in the Senate and then they can do a couple things. They can either pass legislation to codify Roe. They can perhaps get rid of the filibuster. And that's pretty much all that's on the table right now. You know, there is negotiations that are happening right now between two Republicans, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, and a Democrat, Tim Kaine of Virginia, on legislation to ensure access to abortion. And that could be done soon. And perhaps it gets brought up for a vote. And perhaps it gets the support of two Republicans, Murkowski and Collins. But that's still eight short. So there's not a lot of legislative answers at this point. And Democrats haven't come up with any alternatives. I mean, their answer is to vote in November. And we'll see if that is an effective strategy. And then
0: what about Republicans? How are they seeing this moment and the Supreme Court decision on abortion influencing their chances in November?
1: Well, unlike Democrats, Republicans have been voting, at least the Republican base, many of them have been voting on this issue of abortion, wanting it to be banned, uh, Roe v. Wade to be overturned. But now that they have it, Will they still head to the polls over it? I mean, I think that the Republican base is also very motivated. But the question is, is is— what about those independent voters, those moderate voters, especially in the suburbs that Republicans have been losing for the past several election cycles, especially suburban women? Um, and there is some consternation among some Republicans about that voter block and that demographic with this issue. And that calls into a question on, you know, Republicans are reluctant right now to talk about legislating in Congress, a federal ban to abortion. These are things that make Republican leadership weary because they know that things like that are not popular. It's popular among the Republican base, but they need more than the base to win elections. And so it's going to be one of the most interesting dynamics um, heading into the fall and of course, a million other things could happen between now and then. But it's not a slam dunk for either party.
0: So, Leanne, when you take into account everything that happened last week in Washington, um, you know, both this historic bill passing in Congress, but also these two major Supreme Court decisions and especially you know the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which I think rocked the whole country. Like, what do you make of that? What do you think what do you see as the common theme here that connects these different landmark moments in our country.
1: Well, I have to borrow the words of our colleague, Paul Kane, who's—I'm not sure if he wrote this in the paper, but he did write it in a text message (laughs) that said, you know, for Democrats, it's like one step forward, two steps back. There's all this incremental movement And then it seems like, for them, it can be wiped away at any moment. The Senate has been able to find ways to work together, as we can see in this bipartisan gun legislation. But the House of Representatives is severely broken. People admit that they don't talk across the aisle anymore. They don't want to work with their colleagues. It's not politically beneficial, and they just have no trust and no faith in the others. And so... You know, there might be these small wins on legislation, like on the gun legislation, but big picture in the last, you know, half a decade, there hasn't been very many big wins on large monumental things. And I think that is really starting to weigh on Democratic members, especially the younger generation. But it is really weighing On the progressive base, the progressives in this country who are losing faith also in institutions, just as Republicans have been over the years and losing faith in really the Democratic Party. And so there's this moment and kind of this fear of where the country is headed and what comes next, despite and regardless of if Congress is ever able to do anything about it.
0: Leanne, thank you so much. Thank you. Leanne Caldwell covers Congress for The Post. She also writes the Early 202 newsletter. It's a great thing to read first thing in the morning with the latest politics and policy updates. We'll put a link in our episode description to sign up for it. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh and edited by Rena Flores. It was mixed by Sean Carter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.